Hey everybody, thanks for listening to the Fanzine Podcast. Just before we get started with the show, this is your host, Tony Fletcher. I want to invite you to sign up for the weekly newsletter over at tonyfletcher.substack.com. It'll give you updates on this podcast, my other podcast, all forms of recommendations with a midweek update, a long-form weekend read. Sign up is absolutely free. There are interview archives, uh, additional podcast features, and you will be able to to see uh, more of the fanzines that uh, we're talking about on this show. That's tonyfletcher.substack.com. Thanks again. Now on with the pod. It's the jamming fanzine. Fanzine. Podcast. I mean, the thing about a fanzine was holding it in your hand, right? And looking at the way it had been put together and the punk way it had been put together, quite quite frankly. And it had a staple in it, you know, and and that was that is a fanzine, right? Episode nine, jamming records with Rudy, Zeitgeist, and Apocalypse. Welcome back, everyone, to the penultimate episode of what we hope is only going to be the first season or series of the Jamming Fanzine podcast. Back when we published the book, The Best of Jamming, Selections and Stories from the fanzine that grew up, 1977 to 86, in September of 2021 we published it, we recorded a number of interviews for these podcasts, thinking it would be a fun, grassroots, fanzine-like form of cross-promotion. And it has been. But here we are now, publishing the last of them. This particular episode focuses on an 18-month period in the middle of the jamming story. In the middle of 81 just over 40 long years ago and there's nothing quite like casting your mind back four decades to realize you're getting old uh jamming expanded from fanzine to record label between that summer and the end of 1982 that label jamming released five singles two by rudy three by zeitgeist and one by apocalypse all five were independent hits and for this episode we brought together one member each from each of those groups brian young from rudy Jaffo Jervis from Zeitgeist and myself, Tony Fletcher from Apocalypse. Because yes, I had my own band and I put out my own record and I have no shame about that whatsoever. However, being that I'm also the host and interviewer on this podcast, I didn't really get to ask myself any questions. So most of what you're going to hear over the next hour is an edited conversation between myself and Brian and Jaffo about Rudy and Zeitgeist about how their groups dealt with being based in the far corners of the British Isles, about the attractions, or maybe not, of moving to London, and about what their experiences were like releasing records on an independent label run by a 17 to 18-year-old kid, but financed by a major pop rock star, that being Paul Weller. Before getting to the interview, a quick reminder about some upcoming events centred around the Best of Jamming book. Uh, Wednesday, February 23rd, I'm going to be in London. I'm going to be flying over from my base, my home in the United States. And I'll be at the Rock and Roll Book Club at the Dublin Castle in Camden Town on Wednesday, February 23rd. That is hosted by Tony Gleed. The next night, I'm going down to Brighton. I'll be at the Rialto Theatre for an event hosted by City Books in Brighton. A conversation with Casper Gomez, but we have a special guest, Guy Pratt. He was on episode two of this podcast. He's host of the Rock on Tours podcast. You should know him for a bunch of other reasons. That's going to be a great night. The following night, I'm just taking a short trip along the south coast to Hastings. We'll be at the Electric Palace Cinema screening the fantastic, rarely seen street verite post-punk movie called Rough Cut and Ready Dubbed, followed by a conversation between myself and DJ Wendy May, who was on episode seven of this podcast. And I'm happy to say we have also rescheduled the date that uh, was postponed in January because of Omicron in New York City. Tuesday, March 29th, we will be at the Barry Electric in the Lower East Side East Village. And I'll be in conversation with WNYC's John Schaefer. Of course, really looking forward to that one. That event is free. The others, I don't believe, are. So follow the links in the show notes so that you know what's in store. I do believe you get discounts for books if you show up. But anyway, uh, people seem to like going to these kind of events and I quite enjoy doing them. All right. I know you want to hear the interview. So do I. The Jamming Record Story with Brian Young and Peter Jaffo Jervis.
do you want to buy a copy of jamming all right i'm sitting here uh with my friends peter jaffo jervis who was formerly the front man with the band zeitgeist and with uh, my Good friend, I would like to believe Brian Young with a splendiferous quiff that we're going to have to take a screenshot of at some point and put up on the uh, on the video or, or as a JPEG. Brian Young, who was the guitarist and a vocalist and for me, the contact person with the band Rudy. What those two bands had in common is, along with my own band, Apocalypse, all three were the only three acts on the Jamming Records label, which was in existence from 1981 through 1982. The first thing I wanted to, to ask now, to be fair, not to fake it, we did have a previous attempt at recording this. I had some sound problems. So we said we'd do it again. But on that one, I said, I am not entirely sure the three of us had ever been in a room together, let alone, you know, Zoom room or real room. And it turned out, if I'm right, have the two of you not met ever in person? No. Never? No. So I'm not quite sure what that says about a record label that had <laughs> had two acts other than the one its own its own yeah. sort of MD was in, and the two of you never met. I'm not sure what that says about things. There was no Motortown review type uh, tour, unfortunately, or a two tone tour, so we never all got to meet each other. No, I mean, we, well, we were stuck in Belfast. It wasn't as if we could just drive down the motorway. You know, that was the. That was the disadvantage coming from Belfast, and it sort of still is. You're, you have a big piece of water to get across and, and then a big motorway to drive down, you know? Yeah, and absolutely to your credit, Brian, your band did that many a time while on the jamming label and previously. And I think it's mm. make, it makes sense for us to start off here by historically and chronologically, Rudy predate uh, pretty much the jamming fanzine, certainly predate Zeitgeist. And you were the first band on the Good Vibrations record label, which uh, astute listeners will know as the sort of you know the first of uh, pioneering northern ireland uh, new wave punk label also the name of a movie about the label you were the first band on that label what was the scene like in belfast in the 70s in northern ireland allowing that and it and, and it has to be mentioned you know even if you wish it it didn't there was intense sectarian violence and violence with the british army etc cetera, etc cetera, going on at the time well, Belfast, when we when I was, there was nothing in Belfast, end of story. Belfast closed down in the mid-70s when I was growing up. Belfast closed down at night, locked up. There was curfews and everyone went home after school or after work to their own areas. And that was it. Didn't go out of their own areas. And there was nothing much in your own area to do anyway. Everything locked up. There was all, as you say, there was all sorts of uh, shenanigans going on. Um, what happened with me was... I was with the people I ran about with. We were all huge music fans, and that was sort of what brought us together. We went to see three of us, or four of us, went over to see Mark Bowen and the Isle of Man. I, he gave me a songbook in 75. I was 15. Came home, thought I'll learn the guitar. And within sort of six months with my mates, we started a band that was Rudy. And we were into sort of glam rock and 50s rock and roll. I learned the guitar playing along with Chuck Berry. And we started our own band and started playing. And then we discovered that there was something sort of similar. I mean, I was a huge New York Dolls fan and found out that these bands in England were starting up and they were influenced by a lot of the same people. And we find ourselves, basically, when punk took off, it was something that we find ourselves that we would identify with is very much part of that. Um, we were coming from a sort of glam rock background and we were still playing rock and roll stuff, like shaking all over right through. But we were the only thing in Belfast sort of remotely resembling a punk band in those days. We were the only band in 1976 out playing. We couldn't, none of the venues, would, the few, what there were, there was working men's clubs who wanted cabaret bands, and there was the Pine that had hippie show bands. We hired hotel rooms ourselves, put on private parties and bunged them out with people playing their mates. And those were the places the first lot of punk bands played in after, much later on. I mean, Stiff Little Fingers was still Highway Star right up to near the end of 77, and then they all became a punk band called Stiff Up Fingers, but didn't cut their hair to 78. Um, and there was really nothing going on. We started, we kick-started the whole thing over here. Um, and then gradually what happened was Terry opened his record shop and there was other bands came out, started playing themselves, the outcasts, whatever else. Alternative Ulster fans, he wanted to do a free flexi disc. And because they got reprinted in the print workshop above Terry's, and Terry priced it for them and it was only a few pence dear to make a proper record. And we went in the first time we were in the recording studio, recorded big time. 
and then the Good Vibrations label was born. And so basically that's how the Good Vibrations label started up. And by 78, through 78, then you had a lot happening over here. It really took off. We showed anyone can do it. And, you know, my mate at school, Ziggy, his band was the second band on the label Victim. Um, and it was just, it, it, was, it just really took off um, like wildfire. That's that's an amazing story, and it and it it covers so much ground because for one thing you've got the DIY aspect of it, Brian. The fact that you were just like you know getting on and doing your own thing and circumventing what you say was a, you know a scene that you mentioned cabaret bands, show bands. That's about all it was. But I also also there's another point you mentioned the name Terry. That would be Terry Hooley, who was the found the founder of both the Good Vibrations Record Shop and label, and you also disproved a scene in the movie so i will take your version about alternative ulster the fanzine as opposed to you being at a gig and ter- a drunk terry hooley coming up to you and saying i'm going to put out your record yeah I, I mean there's an element of truth to that they've condensed it down obviously in the film what happened was that scene was shown is shown the night that terry terry opened the shop sort of mid 77 but he wasn't really interested in the local punk scene and it was a mate of mine we gordy we used to be in out of the shop all the time and he he literally dragged Terry down in January 78 to see ourselves in the Outcasts play. So the gig took place, but that's not really how the, the record came about. But it works well in the film, you know. Yeah, yeah. there's a couple of things. a lot of flim flam. Yeah, I, I know. And films have to do what films have to do. And it's a very entertaining film. And, and, and I think actually a very good film. And I am going to double back in a moment to some of what you just said there. But Jeff, I'd like to know about... Your story, you're, you were equally far from London, not separated by a, a, a sea or a channel, but a long, long way from London. Where were you and what was going on and how did you get your start in a band? Okay, so, I mean, it, it's not too dissimilar a story to Brian's, really, in that at that time, particularly before, you know, the world was so connected, you really felt like London was just, you know, on a different planet almost. So the only things that kept us in touch with anything were the weekly music papers, because um, this was obviously pre-fanzine, and to an extent the John Peel show, although I didn't really start listening to John Peel until punk kicked in. Um, so before that, it was Top of the Pops, really, and that was it, um, and the occasional old grey whistle test. But again, I didn't watch that. We didn't watch that very much either, because it was mainly old hippie groups who we didn't <laughs> like. So we, we all started off with glam and everything. Then we got deeply into black music. Um, and Northern Soul in particular, and we're kind of heading that way for a long time until punk came along, and that galvanised something. As it did the entire country, really, um, but only small pockets of people. There weren't very many of us. So it was um, obviously nothing like Northern Ireland, but it was still fairly dangerous going out of your house when you were a punk back then. Um, so we, we've been chased a few times and things. Punk was relatively isolated, like. If you were a punk, and I wasn't, I was sort of too young to, to, to really be a punk, but there was a degree of danger because the mainstream saw you as outsiders, revolutionaries, anti-royalists, all that kind of stuff. It's not like when rave happened 10 years later and everybody in Britain turned rave and it was like the whole country just went smiley culture for a year. This was about an, an outsider's movement. And I think sometimes we look back and we glamorize punk and rightly so, but we don't actually acknowledge the risks that were involved. Like for you, Brian, putting on gigs, being engaged in that kind of music. And I think you told me a story before about when you were booked for a, a, a wedding or something. We we used to practice in a, a loyalist band hall in Melbourne Bridge Road. And the funny thing was up until sort of 1977, mid 77, nobody was really interested. They just thought, oh, that's those people who dress strange, because there was always people who dressed strange over here, uh, you know, you know, coming out of the glam rock and whatever else. And you've got to remember in the 70s, you know, even when you were working, like your boss in work would have flares and hair down to his backside, you know. Having short hair in the 70s was quite, um, you know, it, it was it was quite revolutionary. And when, but when punk came along, at first they didn't really know what punk was, so they just thought, oh, that's those strange people that, you know, they're like David Bowie and you know, I had a sort of homemade David Bowie haircut and whatever else and pulled my eyebrows out with pliers and stuff, you know, to copy David Bowie. But, you know, they give you a bit of a Bible until it was the media that really hyped up the whole anti-punk sort of 
sensationalism in the Jubilee year, and especially over here. Uh, I mean, people over here don't need an excuse to cross the road to pick a fight with someone. And, you know, just in those days, I would have crossed the road if I saw someone in straight trousers, you know, never mind short hair. So that literally happened to me where I was (laughs) chased by a gang for the heinous crime of wearing drainpipe trousers. Yeah, I mean, and the thing was, you couldn't buy drainpipe trousers then. You know, you had to go to first pair of drainpipes. I I was really proud of them. Yeah, first pair I got was like it was an old dead man's suit out of a pawn shop, you know. <laughs> but you know that 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 was the thing. It was really mid seventy seven, and the one thing I never forget it's the press, and especially the left wing press, the Daily Mirror, and the right wing press. They really hyped up sort of this anti punk hysteria. I mean, I remember a headline being "Punish the punks," and you're on what you were saying there, Tony. To eventually get racked back to it, we used to practice in this hall and. Of the Albert Bridge Road, and the people used to call in and see us playing and that. And they said, Oh, would we play a wedding for them? And then they were all happy enough. And then it was a couple of days before they came and said, We just heard, are you one of those punk bands? And we went, Well, I suppose so. And went, Sorry, we can't we can't let you do it. You know, it's we've nothing against you, but you know, it was just the way things were at the time. Um the one thing I liked about punk was the DIY ethic, but it was also that it made you question things, it made you look at things differently. And over here, you know, you question the way you were brought up, the way things were, the way everything was divided into two sectarian sort of whatever you want to call them. And it still really is for the main part, which is depressing. But, you know, it gave you a chance to look at things differently and look at things new. And to me, that was the important part of punk. But just to show you what it was like, I mean, I think I said to you before, um, with the God Save the Queen thing, people on one side, say on the nationalist side, thought, because it was God Save the Queen, you were obviously pro-monarchy. People who, on the loyalist side, thought God Save the Queen had seen the safety pin T-shirts and whatever, and thought it was obviously anti-monarchy. So, you know, both sides hated you. Yeah. And it was the same later on. They made jam shoes in red, white and blue for one side and green, white and gold for the other side, you know, only in Northern Ireland. Did, did the punk movement that you had there, that you really, really, as, as we've just discussed, and we've glossed over it to some extent because of time, but you did kickstart it as Rudy. Did that really help bring together Protestant and Catholic kids away from all of this sort of violence and the idea that you had, you couldn't talk to your opposing you know, religion, let alone be going to see a band together? Definitely. And I'll tell you why it wasn't a deliberate thing. It was because punk made you question things. And when you got together with people, it was the love of the music that brought you together and at that time, it was the lovely punk music. So you were more interested in what bands people liked. I mean, I would fall out with people if they didn't like the New York Dolls. I couldn't care what religion they were, but if they didn't like the New York Dolls, I didn't like them, you know. The music was more important, than, you know, than the old sectarian baggage. And for a lot of people, punk allowed them to leave that behind and escape that, even if it was just temporarily. Well, congratulations on that. It was, it was so important. And uh, those of us in London held that Northern Ireland, Belfast scene, the whole Good Vibrations label in very, very high esteem. But I noticed something you said right at the beginning. It'll give me a chance to come back to Jeff and talk about some of his influences and favourite acts. One of the things both of you would have been up against that I was not up against growing up in London is that probably very few shows came your way. I mean, yeah, you, you know, Brian, absolutely. Brian across the sea. Yeah, I mean, pre pre. Uh, fortunately, and I've, I'd, I've no idea why, but when the punk thing started there was a club in penzance which is like right down at the far end of cornwall which somehow got onto the touring circuit and so we saw everyone it was amazing um saw the sex pistols like the you know um with sid um the original uh, sex pistol well not with glenn but with sid not quite but yeah um yeah on the mystery tour yeah in fact uh, in the hol- i saw the other day um, there was some documentary about them on and they showed some footage um, from from that gig and you can clearly see me and my cousin Ray in it, Ray who ended up as the drummer in Zeitgeist, and we're both in it leaping up and down, yeah, it was great um, but before that, very little the first band I saw was Sparks and that was 1974 and then it was like a year's gap or something until someone else came down 
Yeah. And I think I think it was Leo Sayer. That's right. Yeah, he was great. Yeah, I mean, you obviously you take what you can get, but hey, you've got something you've got something over most people in that you saw the Sex Pistols because in the States people saw them on the on because they did a pretty big tour in 78 and broke up at the end of it. But other than people who were at uh, the Manchester Free Trade Hall or part of the London scene, I almost I kind of don't know anybody who saw the Sex Pistols outside yeah. of London and Manchester. So you get you get brownie points for that. Now, a lot of people look on Cornwall as, um, you know, picturesque. They look at, uh, what am I thinking of saying, Austell, St. Ives. They're looking at like this, you know, and the, and the beautiful countryside down there. And it would be easy to paint your band as, you know, a bunch of country bumpkins. But Cornwall is not a wealthy county, is it? No, God, no. And particularly the bit we all grew up in. There wasn't much money around and the, there wasn't that much employment around either. Um um, but you know, you you don't know when you're a kid growing up about any of that, really. I mean, it was um, it was more that there was nothing to do. That that was the thing. So yes, you've got the beaches and stuff, and that was fine in the summer, but the rest of the time you're so bored. Um, so that was the re- that was the main catalyst for getting out, really. Right. One of the one of the ways to cure that boredom is to form a band. And I guess if you're insane to start a record label, we'll get to that in a minute. And another way to, to cure the boredom is to start a fanzine. And Brian, you did mention that uh, the Davy Rudy single Big Time was born born out of the idea of doing a flexi disc with Alternative Ulster. And I just wanted to ask about the role that fanzines may or may not have played in Belfast, again, as a unifier between the, the, the different religions and just as a as a source of information for that scene. The, the two people who started Alternative Ulster, if you want to name them, both went on to pretty lengthy musical journalism careers. Yeah, uh, did, did, uh, yeah go ahead. So, yeah, the, well, Alternative Ulster was... Um, Dave McCulloch and Gavin Martin, and also another fellow called Roger Pearson. Um, there were lots of fanzines, and they also, I think Alwyn Greer's Private World might have been the first, either at Return to Ulster, but there were lots of others, CS Control, No Fun, Andy White and Stevie Boyd did it. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, that, that was the one thing about punk, which was so good. Punk over here was more than just the bands, and that, that's why I liked it. It was the DIY thing, and you know, people had seen people over here had for years, we we didn't get bands played here hardly. I mean, Gary Glitter's Farewell Tour in 75 or 76, can't remember which, was brilliant, you know, and the Bay City Rollers used to play. And that was really, Thin Lizzy and Rory Gallagher played the odd time, but they weren't my cup of tea. And that was about it. So anyone here wanted to see a band had to travel. Um, I mean, when I, I was 15 and we went to see T-Rex. I was 16 we went over to see Bowie do Station to Station in Wembley, uh, and that was really mind-boggling too. I went to that. It was brilliant, wasn't it? Yeah, Fantastic I was 16 gig. as well. Yeah, it was amazing. Amazing gig, amazing gig, especially for, you know, we got off the bus and you're sort of wandering about London. This was in the big smoke, you know, and see all these big sophisticated city yeah, people. that you know? concert actually was the first time I ever saw punks. So it was May 1976, I think. And we kind of seen, you know, mutterings in the music press. Uh-huh. But the first real live ones <laughs> were at, was at Wembley Station. And yeah. I'll never, it was a guy who had a long plastic raincoat and those plastic shoes on and short dyed hair. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, they just look amazing. Like, I want to be like that. It was brilliant. Yeah. The attraction of London and the fact that you're in these scenes uh, or non-scenes. So what I'm getting from you, Jeff, is that there's no scene down in Cornwall. But Brian has helped single-handedly. Brian has helped create a scene in Belfast. And that might beg the question, or it might suggest that you would be perfectly happy to stay in Belfast. But actually, Brian, Broody had a very sort of short-lived and not very successful little period of moving to London, didn't you? 78, somewhere around August, August 78, yeah. I, I wouldn't say it was unsuccessful, but the truth at the time was we had done big time. Terry had started the label. He'd put out another couple of singles. We were meant to do a second single for the label, but two of us wanted to and two didn't. And there was nobody coming over to Northern Ireland to see the bands then. Nobody was remotely interested. Um, you couldn't get a mention in the music press, apart from the local fanzines who were really good and really supportive. Nobody was interested. And at the end of the day, it was the same old thing. The music business was in London. So we packed everything into Ford Transit, siphon petrol all the way down from <laughs> Stranraer, arrived in London. 
And we were in London right through to December. And to be honest, we had a great time. We ended up squatting in Clapham. There was a band already over, Pretty Boy Floyd and the James, who we bumped into, and we ended up moving in next door to them. And they were an ex-show band called Candy, who had decided to become a punk band. They ended up, I think, as Gary Holden's backing band at one stage too. But we realised we were big fish in a small pond in Belfast. In London, we weren't even minnows in an ocean. And we basically threw out all our old songs, threw out a lot of stuff, changed the whole band look. And we came home and Chris, at Christmas. Now, we'd intended to come home at Christmas anyway, because um, we'd set dates up in the harp and the pound. You know, we played a lot of dates in England. We, we did play with the Doom the first time <clears throat> they reformed. Ironically, we supported the Stiffs the first time they came over to the Electric Ballroom. Brian, I'm going to ju- I'm going to jump in because that period that you were in London is also uh, would have been the exact time that I saw the Undertones uh, opening for the Rizillos at the Marquee, one of the best. At the Marquee, gig- yeah, I, we were outside that. I was inside, but I bought my yeah, ticket. We were meant to be in the guest list, but uh, it didn't work out like that. I was a 14-year-old who bought his ticket, and I have to say one of the greatest, most memorable gigs I went to. But obviously the point being that while you were in London, I believe that Teenage Kicks was the fourth single on Good Vibrations, and it really kind of with John Peel's support, the label exploded, the band, the undertones exploded, and that must have been that must have been a little tough for you to say, hang on, we started this label, we moved to London, and then it's happening for this other band. Maybe we should root ourselves in, base ourselves back in Belfast after all. Well, we were surprised to see it take off so quickly. And then, of course, we were still very much in contact with, with Dave McCulloch all the time. He, in fairness to Dave, he's a lovely fella. To go out. He got us into Johnny Thunder's after-show party at the Lyceum and stuff like that, which... I owe him for forever. Um, he's a lovely fella. So he he was writing, him and Gary Bushell were very friendly at the time and they were both looking for the sort of next big thing when they were writing for signs. And Dave was going, oh, people are getting interested in Northern Ireland. The undertones have taken off and whatever else. And we were hearing stories from my brother and people at home and that saying, oh, such and such a band are getting record company interest and whatever else. And we were in London. But at the end of the day, we came home that Christmas. Now we had a sort of two of the band had a run in with the police and did a week in jail and whatever else I'm not going to hear. And part of the condition of them not actually going to prison was that they had to return to Belfast immediately. And um, we got a bit of an eye opener on the uh, English justice system there too, but I'll not go into that here. And uh, so we had to go home. But when we did come home uh, that Christmas, we planned to go home anyway, temporarily to do those gigs. And we played to the biggest crowd we ever, the harp ever had in it. And the Pound, we were booked booked to the Pound the day before, and the Pound wanted to cancel the gig because it says no band will pull a crowd two nights in a row in Belfast. And we packed both places out. So when we got back, we were a much, much better band. And I had such a brilliant time in London. I did know about Rudy with Big Time. I had that Cherry Red compilation that came out that had it on there. I particularly fell in love with your second single, um, I Spy. And I contacted you when that came out from Jamming Fanzine. We developed a pen pal relationship. I gave you a couple of pages in in the same issue of Jamming that had an interview with uh, the, the Jam, a very good and funny interview. Now, by complete coincidence, a couple of weeks ago, somebody sent me a picture and then they told me what it was from. And I just yesterday received my copy of this uh, lovely little photo book that's called John's Boys. It's it's I mean, it's really gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And there's a picture here. Is that Dave McCulloch that's sitting alongside me? And looks the- very like him. Yes, it does. Old Dave Angry in those days. Right. So that's Dave McCulloch interviewing yeah. Paul, Paul Weller for Sounds. And there's a teenage 15-year-old wearing a T-shirt designed by Robin Richards, uh, which looks like looks like a Who T-shirt with floppy blonde hair. That's me. That's you, yeah. That's the summer of 79, which is when I fell, well, when I first wrote mm. about Rudy and fell in love with your second single, I Spy. You know, two years later, my relationship with Paul had developed uh, and and more to the point, perhaps the jam had sold a lot of records and I presume there was uh, yeah, more income. And Paul Weller made the suggestion to me about starting a label together. And it took a lot. It took a year of discussion. He's somebody who can change his mind quite a lot. When we did get to the point of saying, OK, we're going to do this label, what would be a good first band? 
I looked to you, Rudy, thinking, well, you had these two singles out on Good Vibrations. I'd even seen you on TV announcing on the Something Else show uh, from Belfast, announcing your third single. It didn't come out. You and I had, ex- had had a pen pal relationship. You explained that there simply wasn't the money at Good Vibrations and asked Rudy to be the first band. And I took the attitude that you must be pretty professional because you'd had a couple of records out. You'd come over to London. And we got off the ground really, really well with your first single. Yeah. And um, we'll, we'll zeitgeist with the second act. And we'll come to that in a minute because they were both in 1981, which would be, help me out, 40 years ago, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're celebrating the 40th anniversary of those first two releases. So from your end, this having a 17-year-old kid sort of call you up and say, uh, hey, you, the band that started the Belfast scene, you want to be on my new record label. I mean, how, how did it feel from your end? And what was what was your vibe on the jamming label? We split with good vibrations. Uh, pressure's on, as you know yourself, it was on that something else program. Perfect, you know, publicity for a single on an indie label. And Terry messed it up. I don't to this day know why it didn't come out. And uh, basically what happened was in between there, not big, big time on being on Cherry Red, Mike Reid had played it to death and and we signed a publishing deal with Pete Waterman through Mike's sort of with Mike putting him in touch with us. Um, Pete Waterman, we'd been overdone demos for him. Pete was going to get us a deal, I think it was with Ariola or someone. And then out of the blue, you got in touch with us and said, would you like to sign with Jamming Records? Now, the Ariola deal, it was never, you know, we were never actually handed pieces of paper or whatever. Um, but we just thought, no, we'd rather work with, with someone that we know. Plus, obviously, the cachet, I suppose, of having Paul Weller as well. Although none of us were big jam fans, particularly. But we just thought, no, we'll go with Tony because that's, you know, to we can pick the phone up and just speak to him sort of thing. Yeah, and you and I would have kind of pretty much daily calls at, at, at the time. I think actually Paul Weller quite liked that you weren't big jam fans. He wanted to set up a label. But he also wanted it to be you know, definitely not mod revival bands. That was for certain. The first single, When I Was Dead, did very well. We recorded it at Polygram Studios. I think Polydor managed to write you off as a demo act under a fictional mm-hmm. name. And yep. <laughs> um, Paul Weller was in the studio, but he kept his name off any production credits for the similar kind of reason. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was just hearing the other day that if you want to release vinyl right now in the UK, you have to plan six months in advance. Yeah. The pressing plants are booked up six months in advance. We had 5,000 copies of When I Was Dead delivered to the distributors 10 days after you finished recording. I couldn't, I mean, it's brilliant. <laughs> you know, Tony, I'll be honest, it, it's still my favourite Rudy record, and it's it just Paul Weller and Pete Wilson couldn't have been more helpful in the studio. As I say, we had very little studio experience, but it's the only record I ever made when I was in Rudy that actually came out signed in exactly the way I wanted it to. Um, and I just think it's by far my favourite radio record to this day. Uh, everything about it. I remember you had such, the thing that was so good for us with jamming was that you had a network of people around you who were basically tied in, to, you know, could help you with things that you'd built up through the fanzine. So the cover, you'd got Robin doing the cover. I remember going off after we'd done the record and climbing into Highgate Cemetery to take a photograph. You had, was it? Andy and Rosen. Andy Rosen took the photographs and then, you know, we're back next day, finish everything off. And there you are. There's a record done and dusted and you'd all the contacts to make it happen. And, and you know, I think that that's why Jamming worked as a label because of all the people you had working in the background, which is, again, the DIY ethic. You know, it wasn't you weren't employing, you know, major label designers who were working with 300 people and had six bands in a row and whatever. Yeah, I mean, it's very. It's important to state because I'd like to be able to talk a bit about the. Uh, yeah, we are talking about the indie label scene, and obviously, Good Vibrations had run into cash flow problems, which I I then ran into down down the line. But that was partly because we didn't really have a business plan. You, you know, Paul's idea for the label, for better or for worse, because I can't change it now, was I will pay for the costs of putting out a Rudy single, and then the money that comes in 
you can use to run a label, which made a lot of assumptions. Most most prominently, it made the assumption that the first record would make a profit. <laughs> a sort of sort of second assumption was that money would come in quick enough to make another record. You know, a couple of months down the line, not knowing about how distributors pay two months down the line, and you know that's a, that's mm-hmm. your cash flow. And the third thing being, by the way, that we did not pay for. The recording session for Rudy. So that meant that when it came to doing another record, which was with Zeitgeist, it's like, well, where does the recording budget come from? Because that wasn't part of the initial money. So there were definitely some flaws with that setup. But the positive aspect of it was that it was very much an indie label. Sure, I was working out of a, a, an office and that was nice. I like, but it was my own little room and it was, uh, you, you can both vouch, it wasn't a big room. But it was very much an indie label. I mean, I called up Rough Trade and said, do you want to distribute this label? I I delivered artworks and lacquers and I went to Porky's Prime Cut. You know, I went and did those things myself like any other indie label and kind of got on the phone and hustled people. Will you write about the label? And at, uh, we had a plugger helping us, but he said at the beginning, you go to see David Jensen's producer. You call up John Peel. You know, I'll see if I can get any help on the daytime side, but you go to those people. And I, so I ran it much like I'd ran my fanzine, which was, all right, what do you do? You put something out and then you infuse about it to the point that people have to pay attention. And um, we did all right with when I was dead. And I think, so I think it worked. I think that philosophy yeah. works. Your story, Jeff, um, tell me how Zeitgeist, uh, how, how you and I hooked up with, with Zeitgeist, because you also had to look at things and say, can we be a functioning band on the other corner of Britain? Yeah, so, so we moved to London in September 79, I think, and then pretty much had to start again, you know, um, and in fact, we lost a couple of members on the way as well. So it took a while to get reestablished, and we were just playing very small gigs but one of the things that attracted us was we knew there was this big fanzine culture out there so you didn't have to like get picked up by the enemy or anything like that we started buying these fanzines and then looked basically for the ones nearest where we lived so we could get to them easily (laughs) unfortunately for us jamming was pretty close by um this is i mean so long ago but my my memory is me and corin who's now the DJ Ed 2000 in Berlin, went and literally knocked on your door. We had no idea that you'd be in. We didn't know if it was your house or if you'd still live with your mum or whatever. Um, You must have been in because I remember you. And I I think you kind of answered with a slightly what the F look on your face. (laughs) And we introduced ourselves and gave you a cassette that we'd pressed up. We pressed up 100 copies um, of this tape with four tracks on it just to send out and flog at gigs really we we re-established contact after that and to our amazement you liked it and that started it all off really i remember you coming to a couple of our gigs and we had some records out before we were on jamming and i remember you wrote very nicely about them and you interviewed us and stuff and it yeah um and going back to what brian said about the sort of weller connection we weren't jam fans either by any i mean it's not the didn't you know, we didn't dislike them, but they just weren't on our radar, really. And what attracted us to jamming was you. We liked you. Do you know what I mean? Oh. You you were like, a, <laughs> you were an energetic, go-getting kind of person. And we thought we want to be involved with this guy because he's good. He's going places and he's enthusiastic and he likes us. And, you know, that, that was it. The Weller thing, obviously, there was a bit of cachet to it. It was more, that's great that he's got someone well-known who's funding it. But you you were the attraction for us, not Paul Weller. Yeah, I mean, I mean I'm, I'm obviously a little humbled and, and, and honoured and flattered and all, all of those things. I do want to stress because it became a massive albatross for me. And to some extent, uh, always has been that, uh, the the lines got blurred very quickly, and because Paul Weller put this sort of seed money into the label, and then said, "Yeah, now you go off and run it," and then he did have to and and did put more money into it. People just assumed that he was behind jamming the magazine, the fanzine, and that maybe he always had been, and that was so far from the truth. But uh, your debut single, you went the other way. You had a, a plan and you kind of delivered us a finished copy, a finished mix of um, a Motown song. Yeah, it was just a song we were such huge fans of. 
um, Ball of Confusion, uh, the Temptations version, although there's lots of great versions out there. And we'd been doing it for quite a long time, but because we weren't competent enough musicians, we had to kind of arrange it in a way that we could play it. And it kind of worked, you know, it was kind of post-punky with a bit of funky sort of sound in there. And it kind of fit in quite well with the times, really. It, it was not that similar to the rest of the stuff we did, but it always went down well. Yeah, we thought we'd like to do that. And also we wanted to do an, a long version of it as well, because although it came out eventually on a seven-inch single with the main bit on one side and then the kind of extended bit on the B side, the plan originally, I think, was to make a sort of extended 12-inch version, which I guess for financial reasons never happened. So so on that 12-inch, would-be 12-inch version, because I just listened to the full mix before getting on this call, you brought somebody into the studio. Did you just like bring them off the streets? What was the story? Yes. It's a good story. It's pretty much. So the bass player, Gary, lived on this estate in North London. And this lad lived on the same estate. And I think Gary used to walk past his flat and hear dub reggae blaring out like really loud. And so he just said to him, hey, we're making a record. Do you want to come down and toast on it? It was called then, right? It's rapping now, I guess. But yeah, they used to call it toasting. And he went, yeah, all right, man. <laughs> he, came down. he was only a kid as well. And he went and did this thing. And I can remember you couldn't see them through the control room window. It was so full of dope smoke. They're like, how the how they managed to do anything, I don't know, but he managed to stumble out <laughs> this kind of, <laughs> this slurred kind of rap. But it worked, do you know what I mean? It, it sounded great. Um, and we didn't, there wasn't time to do a second take, so we just went, yeah, that'll be all right. <laughs> Off it went. And it, it really, really did work. And uh, you're right, I split it up in um, old, good old-fashioned James Brown style, but two sides of a seven-inch yeah. single. Which we... I remember us say, discussing that at the time. And I remember you saying, like the James Brown single. It's funny how you remembered things, isn't it? And I, and I remember us all going, oh, yeah, that's a really good idea. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then to, to my enormous surprise, because it was a, a lo-fi recording, it, it was done in, you know, it certainly wasn't done at the Polygram studios. And maybe because it sounded like it was made on an AM radio, it ended up that the plugger that we were using, who was really doing it as a favor um, to, 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 the, to the jam, we released that record very close to Christmas and in the lull between Christmas and New Year, suddenly Ball of Confusion started getting daytime airplay, which completely threw us. I yeah. mean, you might have thought Rudy were a band that were building up towards daytime airplay. And all of a sudden, Spanner started, because that was his name, Spanner, started calling me and saying, uh, I think you're going to get played on such and such a show today. And, yeah. and I think it started with Round Table. What was the, 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 the story with Round Table? Because it's another good one. Well, that is just fantastic. So it was on round table on a Friday night when I can't remember that it might have been Mike Reed or someone who was the host. And they would have various celebrity guests on to review the week's releases. And your plugger got ball of confusion on when the Bee Gees were on, <laughs> who were like massive at the time. I mean, you know, they all they, they still are, I guess. But you know, this was just post-Saturday night fever and tragedy and all those things. And and the so the Bee Gees ended up having a discussion about our record. And Barry Gibb, God bless him, absolutely loved it and said he thought it was a number one smash. And Robin Gibb um wasn't quite so keen. He said he was too much a fan of the original really, which is fair enough, you know. But yeah, Barry Gibb what a guy. <laughs> it, it, it was a shock. It obviously uh, it was an enormous shock. But we had not expected this with Zeitgeist. And it was over the Christmas holidays, and I couldn't really get hold of distributors. And I just assumed, well, okay, people now want to go out and buy the record. Like, if you get played in the daytime Radio 1, that means that, well, there's 10 million people listening, therefore about 500,000 are going to be walking into their local record shop now. And tomorrow I'm going to get an order for like, you know, 10,000 singles. We'll have to press them up overnight and we'll have a hit record. And it didn't work anything like that. You, the demand was genuinely not there because, to be honest with you, 
the housewives who were listening to Radio One and the guys in the factories, and I'm saying it that way because it was a very sexually segregated society, they're like, oh, that's good. You know, they would need to have seen a video. They'd have need to have seen you on another TV show. They'd have needed to read about you in the daily papers or something. And, and there we are saying, we're going to have a hit record. And somewhere around mid-January, you finally get in the indie charts. And by that point, the daytime radio producers have said, you know, we can't keep playing this record if it's yeah. not a hit. I, I remember, um, you know, there used to be the 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 thing that um, Alan Partridge so brilliantly took the mickey out of when the one DJ would hand over to the next one and they'd have a bit of, you know, hmm. really cringy kind of banter. And um, two of them... I, Paul Burnett, I think, and whoever followed him at the time were like arguing about our record, you know, because one of them played it to finish up and the next one was going, oh, what was that record, mate? Oh. And, 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 and we were thinking, oh, my God, this is amazing. This is like, it's going to blow up. But then we all went off to Cornwall because it was Christmas and we went to see our mums. So we wouldn't have been around to capitalise on it anyway. <laughs> Well, the fact is you're laughing about it. So you didn't take it out on the record label. I think if it was a major no. label had got you that exposure, you'd have had every right to call them up and go, why was that not a hit record? But you didn't treat me that way. No, I mean, we didn't know either. Do you know what I mean? We had no idea what to expect. We didn't know that these things were happening and that meant you had to react instantly or anything like that. We, we were all learning as we went along. We were just thrilled that the Bee Gees were talking about us. You know? <laughs> the fact that anyone might actually go out and buy it didn't really register. Yeah, <laughs> I know. And unfortunately, you know, that in some, to some extent, that's a, an opportunity with Radio 1 that the, you know, that comes along, gets, gets, uh, you get that one shot and, and, you may just get half a second shot. And to that end, Brian, we came back around to, to Rudy and you did the single Crimson. Um, you, I think you also had a roundtable experience with that song, but you also um, you expanded the band at that point, didn't you? And I kind of look back on that sometimes and wonder, I wonder about it. It was now 1982 and synth pop was everywhere. Let me put it that way. Synth pop, the big record at the end of 1981 was not Ball of Confusion. It was Don't You Want Me. And Spandau Ballet and Duran Duran, all of us were hearing that music and saying, is what we're doing still relevant? How did how did you react to all of that, Brian? Well, we just always did our own thing. But what happened with us was when, when I was dead, came out, Mike Reed took us out for breakfast. We brought him along a copy of the record. He had just got moved. He's always been a big supporter of the band. And we uh, he took us out for breakfast. We brought him when I was dead. He just got moved to the daytime slot, the morning slot, I think, in Radio 1. And we thought, Brilliant, Mike's going to play this to death. And he says, love the record, but my producer won't let me play it. It's too noisy, it's all guitars. And we had been sort of, we were playing as a three-piece. And a lot of the songs we were writing, we were writing as a three-piece, which was great. But we sort of thought maybe we should try adding something slightly different because we we didn't, we were still, if any time we came to London, we were still getting reviewed, you know, in time out, they'd write young Ulster punks in trouble with the law. You know, and then at the time there was that whole horrible sort of exploited 81. Yeah, punk's gum, not dead. Gu yeah, Gumby yeah. punk rubbish. And, you know, we wanted to distance ourselves from that very much so because, you know, that was nothing to do with what I had seen as punk as. And, you know, so we ended up, we did a session for Kid Jensen and brought a fellow over to play keyboards on it. A fellow Paul Martin from Bangor here on we paid him a couple of bottles of Buckfast wine and paid his train fare. So he literally came over in the train. We picked him up, took him to Made of Ale Studios. He did the session with us, took him back to the station, put him on the train home with another bottle of wine. And basically, we lo loved the way the, the session turned out. He added keyboard bits that were, they, they weren't, I mean, we weren't trying to tie ourselves in with what was modern or current. It was just trying to expand the sound. And it worked on that session. So we thought, well, like, we'll bring keyboards in uh, on a trial basis. And Paul then sort of came into the band for that for that period. Now, the problem was it worked on the new songs. I didn't think it worked in the old songs, but we couldn't say to him, you know, if we were playing live, 
don't play on this song or ideally it would have been you know, pick up a guitar and play but you know Paul was a keyboard player so that's how we got keyboards my band was you know Apocalypse so I'd been in that band since school we'd always meant there was always the intention to be on the jamming label and um, you know we added to our lineup right at that time as well we went from being a three piece to being a five piece and added brass and I think you Zeitgeist were a bit different because you already you added a percussionist so I mean I think everybody yeah. was looking and going the three piece the four piece rock band is is a thing of the past so we were we were all in that boat of expanding lineups and i mean i totally understand why why rudy did what they what they did and and when i was listening to a compilation today before coming on this call you know the the you hear like half a dozen no you hear about eight songs by rudy the first three singles then suddenly you hear crimson and there's this synth at the start and it is a little bit like hang on did the record finish yeah i'm on spotify did Mm -hmm. it jump to another band And the really sad part about it is that that second single, Crimson, which did well, you toured with the jam, uh, Brian. And um, that was your last, your second record was your last record for jamming. We had a a run of things in 1982. Zeitgeist got a second single as well, but then somehow Zeitgeist got a third single and the Apocalypse single came out. And then suddenly Paul Weller had broken up the jam and decided he didn't want to do the label anymore. yeah. I mean, that's the unfortunate truth of 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 what happened. And um... well, the, not I'll, I'll not take much time over it, Tony. But for us, everything was brilliant. I mean, because we had got the major support slots on the Transglobal European tour. We'd been over and played with the Jam at Hammersmith at Christmas, and we got the tour out of that. As far as I know. Um, we had a brilliant time on the tour. We actually got encores most nights, which most support bands playing with the jam didn't on the last night of the tour that we played crimson was single of the week in sounds and we got an encore that night too and then all went out for a party with uh, the jam afterwards and then ended up staying in a, one of my mates who's at university in leeds broke into a flat for us to stay <laughs> that night and woke up in the morning with a line of policemen outside <laughs> but they were actually looking for the yorkshire ripper so we escaped but I mean, no, everything went so well. And then John Weller in particular, I think, had taken to the band and, and they arranged a headline tour for us. And it was really successful as well. I mean, I, I, we that's the thing to this day, yourself especially, put so much work into it, but also um, by getting us that headline tour ourselves. You know, in effect, Paul Weller was the only sort of person of the punk sort of people who said they would put money into things that ever did. Now he mightn't have put, you know, thousands of millions in or whatever, but he still did put money in, which, you know, has to be acknowledged. And that that tour did really well for us. And as you know, they brought us over and for the first time ever, the, we, Alan Shacklock went through the songs with us and we were booked into Abbey Road to do Love Is Electric as the third single. And John Weller had promised there would be adver- proper advertising budget, this, that and the other. And we even had the... Uh, boat ticket booked over to take the van over to Abbey Road. And then we got the phone call to the label, the jam of split and whatever else. So that was basically when we called it a day. Yeah, I'll come back to you in a minute on, on that. Jeff, you did get to do three singles. Stop was the second. The, the final one, the Stop was a great record. It was the first one we got to put out on 12-inch. The final one is a weird one because I know Paul Weller didn't like it and somehow... Yeah, I, I put it out because I had a degree of carte blanche and maybe it wasn't the greatest record. Here is, it was called Over Again and Ripped. And here is the irony that when I go on Discogs right now, the cheapest I can get a copy of it is $50. There are 333 people want that record. And I hate to say somewhere down the line, we threw out at least 333 unsold 12 inches. Somewhere on the 12 inch, there is a percussive groove that DJs want. And isn't that just one of those bloody ironies, hey? Yeah. Well, I mean, to be fair, he was right. It wasn't very good. Do you know what I mean? I can I can understand why he didn't like it. But I think it's got a groove in it that if you play it at 33 or pitched up a little bit, it sounds really funky and it's really kind of, it's got this really hypnotic groove to it. 
and I think some DJs have picked up on it since, yeah. And it, yeah, it's, which is a kind of a nice thing. And apparently it was really popular in Japan as well. But I only found this out like 30 years after, because otherwise <laughs> we could have capitalized on it and gone over there. But, um, you know, there you go. Them's the breaks. Yeah, <laughs> they are the breaks. And yeah, there's a copy on sale. Here. There's only eight copies on sale. And one of them is from Japan. Um, 6,800 6, yeah. yen, whatever that might might correspond oh, to. But um, fortune. You're, you were produced, uh, you know, we're dropping names. And, and uh, we've really only been dropping one or two names here. You were produced by um, a couple of our old glam rock heroes, weren't you? Yeah, that that was one of the best things to come out of the whole music experience for me was um so when ball of confusion was doing well david jensen picked up on it and offered us a session and one of the staff producers at the bbc was buffin from not the hoople the drummer and we just hit it off with him really well i mean he was he's dead now bless him but he was such a lovely lovely guy and really funny um and so when it came up to do our next single on jamming, which was Stop, we asked him to produce it. And he brought along his partner in crime over in Watts, who was the bass player in Mott as well. And we idolised Mott when we were younger. Um, I opened up with a Mott song on my radio show uh, on Sunday night. Uh, I love him. And Overin was possibly even funnier than Buffin, if anything. I mean, I could fill an hour of your podcast with stories they told me. They were so funny. So they produced our final, our final, our, our, our two two of our singles for jamming, and started off a friendship that went on for many many years. Actually, we we did lose touch, and I got in touch with Buffin again not too long before he died. But he was quite advanced with dementia by then, so his carer was able to say that he kind of smiled when uh, she heard he had been in touch, which was lovely. But um, yeah, and then over and died a year after him. Um, but yeah, great guys and so funny. Oh, my God. We used them on, a, on a, the Apocalypse 12-inch. They were uh, incredibly easy to work with. They worked as a, as a pair for a grand total of 200 pounds, which is, I mean, it was, it was nothing yeah. back then. Of course, it's nothing right yeah. now. You mentioned that you have a radio show. You did not leave the music business entirely. I think I, I even saw a picture of you on stage recently. Why don't you just tell us what you're doing? I'll let you go and I'll just round things off with Brian here. Thanks, Tony. Yeah. So very briefly, yeah, I host a, um, a weekly show on The Face Radio, Brooklyn. And I have been doing that for just over three years. And for seven years before that, I hosted an hourly show on Salford City Radio. And it's called Blues and Grooves. And I play a selection of blue soul funk ska reggae whatever i like really um and that is another um gig that i'm very thankful to you for tony because it was you that introduced me to the guy that runs the station curtis power so that's marvelous you you've never lost your love of music and uh, uh oh, yeah God, and uh, i'm in touch with a couple of the other people in zeitgeist and i'm so happy about those friendships um i know you have a day job you've got to get back to it thank you for your time jeff thank you so much for thank your you. time and good luck with everything thanks for sharing your stories about zeitgeist i will see you soon take care of yourself thank you can i just just one very quick thing before i go and that's to thank you um for all your work all those years ago and um and i think one of the testaments of those times is as you've just said we're all still friends and that's me and you me and the rest of the band we're all still really good pals and uh, i i always think if, if there'd been any measure of success involved that probably wouldn't be the case so um i'm really <laughs> glad about it to be honest anyway take care of right. yourself thank Guys, you Jeff. great to see you bye Jeff, cheers I felt for you quite obviously more than Zeitgeist, not because I was playing favourites, but as you can see from Jeff, you know, Zeitgeist, they were in London, most of them had day jobs, they, they, they had a fantastic run with it, but they were like, okay, all right, the label's over, but for Rudy, who had kick-started the Belfast scene, who had been such an important mm. band for a number of people, and for whom we were ready to go into the studio and do what would have, I'm sure, been a really good record, I think it was very painful. And you never, as a band, you didn't bounce back from that, did you? It's so weird because I've been doing, people are, there's a couple of fellas who are supposedly 
writing a book on Rudy over here. Um, so they've started and I put together a timeline for them of all the gigs we did. Um, and there was a hell of a lot of gigs in a very short space of time, which is quite, quite amazing. But when you look at 1981, 82, there's gigs every week. And, you know, you could just see everything was building up, you know, moving in the right direction. And, you know, the one thing that still frustrates me to this day is, you know, there's some people see Rudy as the band that made big time, and that was about as far as they look. And to me, the much more interesting part of the band and more rewarding part of the band was the jamming years. You know, everything went right for us during those years until it didn't. (laughs) (laughs) But, but, uh, you know, everything was building up. Everything was moving in the right direction. And to be honest, as you say, all sorts of things, you know, the record could have come out and sold three copies or whatever else. But, you know, we'd had such a good time on the jam tour. We'd hit it off really well with all the roadies and everything um, and, and the road crew and Wally and Ivy and all in particular. And, you know, then on our own tour, we'd had a great time on that. So it was just everything. The bottom line was, Tony, we trusted, you know, we trusted you and still do. We were really, you know, because we just thought, if, if, you know, Tony will do what's right for us. And I, I still, you know, still believe that. I still believe you were trying your best for all the bands on the label. And we were really fortunate to be on the label and have someone like you run that. So I'm not blowing smoke up your horse, but, you know, that, that's the way we felt at the time. Well, it's, it's, it's good to know because I, I felt that you uh, you definitely suffered the most from from the label folding. At least my, my band had, you know, we didn't really touch much on Apocalypse, but we had just had our first record yeah. out. And with no label, I was able to go, well, I'll focus on my own band. And I was able to get us a, mm-hmm. a deal. I got us the wrong deal, but I was able to get us another deal. Yeah. And I had to I had to say, you know, Zeitgeist and Rudy are big people. You know, they're grown ups. So they're just going to have to look after themselves. So it, it mm-hmm. actually matters a lot to me that we that we stayed friends and we didn't have falling outs and the hard fiends. You yeah. have also stayed in music. And um, can you uh, take yeah. this opportunity to plug your 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 current group? Because a haircut like yours would be uh, is too good to waste on uh, on Zoom calls. It you know it needs to grace record cover sleeves and the occasional non pandemic live stage. Yeah, well, as I say, I've been playing. Well, I've been playing rockabilly all my life. And Rudy, as I said, we used to play shaking all over and a lot of old rock and roll songs too. But I've, it's for the past over a quarter century, I've been in the Sabre Jets, um, which is myself, Liam Killen on guitar, Bill Johnson double bass and Lou Steele drums. And we've been playing, it's just our own self-pen take on sort of rockabilly. But, you know, it's not the sort of museum type rockabilly or purist rockabilly. It's a just an amalgamation of everything we've all done down the years. And, you know, these are, you know, as I say, 25 years, we won't be alive in the next 25 years, but, you know, it's just, it's it's the most fun I've ever had being in the band. and I enjoy playing with the people in it. Um, And we just have a new album out. And it's called The Restless Kind on Raucous Records. And it's doing really, really well. Um, there's something to be said. I've also uh, played in other musical outlets, and there's something to be said about not being on the ladder to fame and fortune and just playing yeah. because you love it. There is something to be said for that. And the fact that you uh-huh. just said, you know, you've had the most fun playing live this last quarter century, you can tell Jaffo still loves his music. I think, you know, I still love, love my music. And that's, that's a good thing. I think we were all lifers to begin with. Yeah. So some people just can't let go of it, you know, and I think that's a good thing. It keeps me out of trouble. That's the bottom line. Yeah. Yeah. So, and it always has. So I don't see any reason to stop. Many thanks to Brian and Jeff for the great conversation. Uh, That was edited, by the way. It ran an hour and 20 minutes initially. We had such a good time. And it is lovely to have friendships that have lasted this long. I've only seen Brian once in person in about 35 years, I would imagine. It was about four or five years ago now when I was in Northern Ireland for a wedding and he and his partner Liz drove down from Belfast the day after. Jeff I do get to see far more often when I'm in London. He's got a band as well. They're called King Biscuit. They occasionally play out. And if you see their name, check them out for a great night out. 
And across the course of this interview, you would have heard music by Rudy Zeitgeist and right there at the end of it all uh, by Apocalypse as well. And Rudy and Apocalypse both have compilations available currently through Cherry Red. Zeitgeist do not, which is why you may have been able to hear surface noise on those tracks fresh off Jaff's vinyl. But as John Peel himself once famously noticed, life has surface noise. Links to as many of our various activities as possible, along with social media contacts, can be found in the show notes, which are lurking on your phone or your computer screen if you search for them. So I mentioned up front about this being the penultimate episode of the first series or season, and I also mentioned that this was the last of the interviews we'd stockpiled. So how will we put together an episode 10, you ask with bated breath? Well, to round this all off with a nice double-digit number of episodes, we're going to take you through the full jamming saga via an interview I did with James Endicott for his radio show Morning Glory on Soho Radio. James is a great host and interviewer. He was in the band Loop, he was Nay and Argyle at Rough Trade, and he's also one of life's true characters. And from there, we may venture into interviewing other former and current fanzine editors and authors. We may find ourselves publishing some of the audio from the old jamming interviews, which would be fantastic if we can clean them up sufficiently. And we may possibly decide we've done the job we set out to do and get back to our, quote, day jobs. So if you do want to see this podcast continue, please hit subscribe and or leave a rating and or a review on whatever platform you use. My thanks to Greg Morton at Omnibus Press, as always, for his continued help editing this show and designing the artwork. To my son, Noel Fletcher, for the jamming podcast theme music and the episode titles. And to you for listening. Until next time, do it yourself. <laughs>